0: Welcome to Brave Dynamics. This is your host, Jeremy Yao. Leadership is harder than it looks. As a proven founder and Harvard MBA, I interview courageous entrepreneurs, executives, and investors every week. I also share my frontline experiences, coaching insights, and own professional development journey. If you're stepping up as a new leader, founding a startup, or venturing into a great unknown, this is the podcast for you.
1: Sean Liu is a co-founder at Better.com and part of the core leadership that built an integrated home ownership tech company, mortgage, real estate, insurance from zero to over 500 million in annual revenues since its inception. Better has originated over 15 billion in loans and made home ownership more accessible for thousands of Americans. Better.com is backed by a storied investor group including Goldman Sachs, KPCB, Ping An, MX, Li Bank, and Citigroup. Better has been named to Forbes Fintech 50, CNBC Disruptor 50, and is listed by both Fortune and Cranes as the best place to work. Sean recently began the transition out of Better to be closer to family in Singapore, and he currently serves as an advisor to the executive team. Over the years, he has worn many hats at Better, In his immediate prior role as head of operations, he oversaw 10x revenue growth in two years while simultaneously improving margins and profitability. He was responsible for the backbone of Better's global workforce comprising 2,500 plus professionals across Better Mortgage, which does sales and loan fulfillment, Better Real Estate, offshore services and business operations and strategy. Outside of Better, Sean is the co-founder of the Black Belt Project, a community initiative that trains kids at the Vatsalia Orphanage in India into award-winning karate black belts. He had also previously co-founded Audible Hearts, a peer-to-peer crisis support platform for youth in Singapore. In his free time, Sean can be found playing the New York Squash League, taking Cantonese classes Chinatown, and cooking Singaporean delicacies in his kitchen.
0: Hey, Sean. So good to see you again from the Conjunct Consulting and Audible Hearts
2: days. Hey, Jeremy. It's great to be here. Thanks for having me.
0: It's funny, you know, we've started out working in the social entrepreneurship scene together and then see both of us also do the consulting and startup track as well.
2: Yeah, our paths have been very, very similar.
0: I always remember just less than half a year ago, us enjoying some Singaporean food in New York, and the world is
2: inverting itself so quickly. Yeah, I remember that. It's hard to believe it's actually in the same year.
0: Well, for those who don't know how incredible a leader and founder you are, perhaps it'd be great if you could share what your journey has been so far.
2: Yeah, of course. So I kind of came out of college, really, without a very clear idea of what I wanted to do. I was a biology major in college, spent most of my time in lab, and then when I decided that I didn't want to go to med school, I didn't want to go to graduate school, and I wanted to go into business, I figured I needed some way to get some practical skills. So for the first few years post-college, I went into consulting with BCG. It was kind of like my version of an MBA. I did that for like a few years. And ironically, actually, it was one of my last projects at BCG that convinced me that I needed to leave to go join the startup world. And that project was really me providing ground support to the UN emergency response for Ebola. It was a case team. We were based out of Ghana, and it was the very early days, it was in 2014, it was the early days of the Ebola response, and we were coordinating the various UN agencies to provide support. And it was the first time in my three and a half years in consulting where I realized that I was very, very passionate about what I was doing. The hours were really long, but it didn't really matter. Two It was very impact focused. It was about like what we could get done. Like I would call up the health officer in Liberia, realize that the hospital was down. They had four generators, three were down and they were down to their last one. And I would be able to connect with somebody to send them a generator so that they could keep the hospital going and that the infected people didn't go back into their villages. That was very real. It felt like it was very impact-focused. It was very different for those folks who who are familiar with consulting. Oh, you know, change this font size, right? Change this font type, make this bigger, you know, separate the bullet points, change the color. And I realized that I really liked the focus on what really mattered, the sense of urgency and the focus on moving the needle. And so I moved in 2014 to go into startups. And at that point, I joined, I was on the founding team of Better. Better was in the early days, very, very chaotic. So I had joined right from the start and you know, was part of founding the company. And in the zero to one days, it was everything that you read about in the press. <laughs> and like, it was the days of like fixing the toilet, example, your own desk. I think at, at some point I was our head of sales. I was our head of strategy. I had like learned more about quality control of loans at some point than I ever wanted to do. I became licensed as a loan officer. That was kind of the zero to one days wearing many different hats. And then sometime around 2018, Better really started to grow up. And I transitioned into sort of a different phase of leadership where it was really, okay, we've gotten from zero to one. How do we go from one to a hundred? And during this phase was when the organization grew from one to 200 people to over 3,000 people today. We had one or two offices and now we're suddenly five offices. You know, the company today is, is Making upwards of five hundred million in annualized revenues, its value in the billions. It has frankly been a privilege to be able to lead the organization through this whole, you know, zero to one hundred phase. But it's also given me an opportunity really to grow as a leader and learn a lot through the process.
0: That's an amazing arc. How did
2: you personally get started being contrarian? Great question. So I think if I think back to sort of my more formative years, so college, pre-college, you know, doing the army when we were constricted in Singapore, I think two things have always stood out to me. One was, I never really found myself being very comfortable in situations where there was a very defined path, right? Where somebody said, hey, you need to do this. And then after that, you do this. And then after that you do this, sure, I would be able to toe the line and do that, but it made me fundamentally very uncomfortable. So whether or not it was in school, where you had your schoolwork and then you had your extracurriculars. I was always the student that was like, well, you know, what about like these other things, like outside of school, right? The school environment. What about doing stuff in the real world? I launched a series of like community projects, I think, to that effect. At one stage, I actually, together with a couple of friends, we took a $9,000 loan to basically buy candy as 17-year-olds and resell that candy, right, for charity on the streets of Singapore, We made like $40,000, which at that point was crazy. But I remember there were like a few weeks as a student when I was still going to lectures and sections and tutorials and then worrying about, you know, what if we are not able to pay back the $9,000, which, you know, as a 17-year-old was a lot of money. And I think the other thing that I think was a big theme for me in those years were I always felt the need to have some degree of social impact. I think social impact and this idea of giving back to the community has always been a theme in my life, and it's been very, very important for me as I kind of went through the years, right? It's the same reason the Ebola project was really interesting to me. It's the same reason that, you know, I had started Audible Hearts or the Black Out project. These are projects that I think speak to a sense that this is a thing that I value.
0: You know, you've seen leadership in action at so many places, from social entrepreneurship to consulting to startups. You know How have you seen that really in action and better?
2: So I think when somebody joins your company, they join for many different reasons. For some, it's a paycheck. For others, it's because they believe in your mission or it will give them opportunities to develop professionally. And this is especially true for startups, right? Like for startups, you're asking people to believe in the idea, to believe that a company will be worth a lot more than it is worth today. So they are beyond just being able to put food on the table, they're really looking at how is this going to benefit me both financially as well and professionally. And I think the way to think about this is really to think of your teammates and your team members and your employees as LPs. Instead of giving you financial capital, they are people who are giving you human capital, right? And it's part of your job as a leader, I think, to repay that with interest. And I think in my role at Better, you know, I think I was always acutely aware that, especially towards the end of the, the time that I was at Better, right, I was managing this team not just the 2,500 folks in my org, but frankly, the full 3,000 people at Better. A responsibility to make sure that they could bring forth their best selves at work, right? We're happy in our community and were treated fairly. To your earlier question, I think the true test of leaders, as they say, is it's not when things go well, right? It's when things don't go well. It's what do you do when your burn rate is too high and you need to cut costs? What happens when you have allegations of harassment in the office? How do you manage the needs of their employees when the world is struck by a global pandemic, right? These decisions that you make and how you communicate those decisions matter greatly to your company, to the employees. And people rely on leaders to be able to make good decisions based on good judgments in those situations.
0: Sounds like, you know, you've gone through quite a few challenges and overcome them.
2: Could you share a little bit more about what you've seen? Yeah, of course. I think the biggest hurdle that I had in growing better was, frankly, scaling alongside the company. I think that's a common saying in startup land, right? Like different stages of company require different people. Company scales three times a year. For three years, it is suddenly 30 times bigger, right, than where you were three years ago. This evolution really required me to grow. And specific to me, I think it required me to not just think... Like I was in a, in a consultant, or what needs to be done, right? Especially when you're managing large groups of people, it's finding ways to be authentic, finding ways to connect at scale, tapping into the emotional leadership. That was a very big learning, I think, for me in managing large teams. And I think a lot of the challenges that I saw as Better grew was helping people scale alongside the company and giving them opportunities to grow. One thing that some companies do is the default option, especially a lot of PCs, You know, they, they like to recommend like, oh, you know, the company's going to a different phase. You should just layer this person. You should just you know, hire above them. And in some cases, that makes sense. But more often than not, what I found to be true has been if you hire well and the people you hire right at the beginning, if they can grow and they have the potential to grow, helping them grow along the way and pushing them to grow will ultimately help your startup right and your venture growth they have the operational context they know what the issues are and at the pace that you're growing the six months or 12 months that somebody needs to come on the operational context i think it's just it's very long and that's really been sort of the the key learning that i've had in sort of this whole blitz scale journey for better which is one i needed to grow and for me growing meant emotional leadership but then i needed to look out you know, at the leaders that I have brought in and figure out how do I help them grow, right? Where are they being blocked? For some other people, it may not be emotional leadership. For other people, it may be, you know, they are already naturally gifted at that, right? So then it's about like, you know, maybe they need to understand what good management systems look like. For other people, maybe it's, you know, they need to learn to delegate better. I find that if you are successful at helping people scale, Naturally, a lot of the other problems, the tactical issues around like recruiting, finance, marketing, all of those things will naturally kind of take care of themselves. And that has been my experience.
0: Now, there are a lot of people who, you know, wanted to themselves, whether to become a management consultant. And there are many management consultants who say they want to become part of the technology sector as executives or founders. So what do you think is the value of management consulting for someone in their career?
2: So the way I saw management consulting, the analogy I like to give people is it's like going to a gym. Imagine if you were an Olympic athlete. The gym is great because it allows you to build different muscles, your leg muscles, your thigh muscles, your arm muscles, your chest muscles. It's a little bit like how consulting exposes you to many different industries right, and many different challenges that businesses face. Right, You may face a restructuring. In some other cases, you may be looking to value a company. So it's kind of like building all these muscles and some people decide that, you know, that's what they want to do, right? Like that's why you have bodybuilders, right? You have some people who decide that that's professionally what they're interested in doing. But then there are other people that say, you know what, I actually want to become a world-class swimmer or I want to become a world-class track athlete and then go through that thing. In those cases, it's, you know, if you need to become a swimmer, well, maybe you actually need to work a lot more on building the right swim stroke. So at some point, I think in that way, I don't think it's that surprising. I mean, consulting has this reputation for people coming in, doing it for two years, three years, and then going off to find their thing. That's not a bad thing, in my opinion. And I think it actually works even for the consulting firms. To me, it's a good thing because it means that this gym is really successful. It's it's helped to create this community of people who understand many aspects of a business. And so when they go on to start their own business, especially in the early days of better. I was the head of sales. I was also running you know, an operational team doing quality control. I was also managing right. valuations. And at some point, I became our head of people. And I drew a lot of my understanding of how to do these things, perhaps not at 100%. But in the early days of a startup from zero to one, right, as I'm sure you must be aware, Jeremy, like, it's not about getting it perfect. It's about like getting it good enough so that you can move to the next thing. Right? And eventually, you will have specialists that will come in. But in the early days when you're the only person and you suddenly are caught with, okay, you know, how do you design compensation? How do you design career progression? Those are the experiences that I had at BCG to draw on, which proved invaluable, especially in the early days of starting my own thing.
0: Now, what's interesting is that we were both management consultants and we are both people who grew up in Singapore and end up having substantial technology startup experience founding uh, in the U.S., How did you find that transition?
2: There were two transitions in my mind. There was a transition from the work environment, I think, in Singapore to the work environment in the US. And then there was a separate transition that I think was from sort of corporate America into startup land. I think the first transition of going from Singapore to the US, I think the US in general, my personal view is that... Because the economy is a lot more dynamic, the opportunities, I think, you get exposure to a wider array of things. Just structurally, I think that's true. The other thing that I think is true, and I want to be a little bit circumspect of saying this, but I do think that the US tends to be a lot less hierarchical. There's less of a, um, you know, you need to go down this path, you need to toe the line. It's very much of a, oh, you think you can do better? Go do it. Like, go, go. Like, don't worry about the hierarchy. Be, almost be a little bit more willing to break things right in order to make the new thing and I, and I think that lends itself to sort of people being slightly more receptive to new ideas new ways of doing things new solutions to solving old business problems the second transition which was from corporate america into sort of like startup land was not feeling like everything needed to be disbalanced and speaking as an ex-consultant right a little bit guilty of overanalyzing things And trying to, oh, you know, I need to figure out exactly what the right answer to this thing is. But frankly, like when I was in India and I needed to find a new place to like plant our new office, I don't have three months to go like do a location analysis of like what the labor wages are in different locations. I have like three weeks maybe to pick a location and then start moving people there and start hiring in those locations. So it becomes what can be done in three months can also be done in one hour. It's a question of like, what is the right time to invest right understanding that okay there's a trade-off to that if i spend an hour i'm obviously not going to be as sure of the answer but maybe i don't need to and i think that that was a big change the big change of like it doesn't have to be perfect sometimes actually it's better if it's not perfect because that's not the thing you're optimizing for in some cases you're optimizing for speed in some cases you're optimizing for being able to resource allocate and do many things at the same time if those things are important then sometimes you have to sacrifice some degree of quality.
0: You know, one thing that's always impressed me about you is your continual ability to learn and to adapt your old ways of thinking and bring those strengths into the new thing while also building new skills This in
2: time. How do you go about doing that? To be really honest, I don't know. <laughs> so I think that... One of the things that I found to be very useful has been to always keep an open mind and not be dogmatic about your perspectives, your opinions about how things are done. That is easier said than done because I think a lot of people aspire to do that. But if you actually like kind of talk to them and they take the time to reflect, they will find that actually in practice, I don't think that that's actually true. I think more often than not, people are actually very wedded to the ideas. This is how the way things need to be done. And I think that in some specific instances, right, like like Apple, I don't think would have been the way it is, or Amazon would have been the way it is, if not for their charismatic and mercurial founders, right? And they were very insistent on the way things were done. And I think that there is something to that, especially when it comes to like product development, customer experience development. But when it comes to sort of like you, right, personal development, I think we should always be open to input from people in order to kind of develop myself as a leader to grow, to scale the company, right? From series A through to like, you know, series D. Along the way, I actually ended up getting a personal coach, an executive coach who works with me on a weekly basis, takes feedback from, you know, my reports, from other people in the company and helps me grow as a result of that. Initially, I was frankly a little bit dismissive because I was like, no time for this, right? This doesn't make sense. But then I realized, especially at the scale that we were growing, one, if I didn't actually scale along the company i didn't improve myself that either i would be left behind you know somebody would replace me because i was just like not doing a good job and i think that opportunity to have coaching i think was incredibly incredibly valuable to me and i would actually encourage other founders other like you know executives in fast-growing startups to consider that as an option, it's not the right option for everybody, but, but at least in my case, it was incredibly valuable. And I think I, I have emerged from that process a lot better as a leader and as a person.
0: What would you say are some common misconceptions about you know growing a company from zero to one to a hundred to a unicorn?
2: Oh, <laughs> I have a long list of these. I'm going to try to do rapid fire and then we can talk through which ones are interesting to engage. One is this idea that great entrepreneurs or great founders need to have great risk appetites. You know, so Malcolm Gladwell actually published a really good article in the New York called The Sure Thing. And I think he did it, you know, I think in 2010. And he talks about the story of Ted Turner and how, you know, everybody talks of Ted Turner as this great entrepreneur. And he's like, he must have taken a massive amount of risk and therefore big risk, big return. But... When he actually fleshes out the story, you realize that actually before Ted Turner got into the television network business, you know, his family had already owned all the billboards in the region. And so like when he started the television network, he just basically advertised it on all these billboards. He gave a couple of examples. He gave that example. He gave another example of a trader who made a really big bet on credit default swaps in the last financial crisis. And his whole point was that true entrepreneurs... Yes, they are willing to take risks, but the really great ones are attracted to deals that frankly lack risk because they are able to see and value things in a slightly different way than regular people, or at least than the, the conventional wisdom. And I think that that's a very, very key insight, which I've personally found to be true, even you know, in working with our founder, Bashal, the biggest insight is not because we were feeling like risk-taking or like, you know, we wanted to just like take a risk and like bet on something. No, it's because we saw that there was a massive opportunity. We did our research. We knew that there was a huge arbitrage there. And therefore, once the timing was right, we just went in. He makes this statement in the article called great entrepreneurs are really like great predators. They understand timing. They understand that it's a sure bet. And then when the timing is right, they go in for the kill.
0: That's a great all by itself. I mean, I think you've perfectly encapsulated why you know great founders have the responsibility to systematically de-risk the business and like you said go in for the kill what are some other misconceptions that you think of
2: the other thing i think is true at least in startup land seems to be that like somehow you have to be a prick to be successful i actually personally have found the opposite to be true i think the best things in life tend to come from things that compound over time and it's true of financial investments i think it's true of relationships in general the networks, the connections that you make with people, if you treat people with integrity fairly, those relationships will compound over time. And I think in the, over the long run, it provides you more opportunities to be successful. And another one that I've sort of seen happen a lot is experience and how people value experience. I think experience is important, but I tend to think that experience tends to be a little bit overrated and frankly, a little bit overvalued. This was definitely true at Better. Before Better came along, you know, loan officers in the industry were mostly commissioned. So when you take a loan, you know, a home loan from a bank, typically the loan officer would get 1% of the commission. So on a $300,000 loan, the loan officer is getting $3,000 in commission. And so when we came along, we said, you know, what if we took people fresh out of college who were in completely different fields and train them to be loan officers so that we can kind of break that mold, right? And, and figure out if, is the industry loan officer kind of getting their $3,000 commission because you know, they really generated that amount of experience, or could we find a better model that serves the customer better? So we went with a non-commissioned model. We trained our loan officers from scratch. So we like to give this example, actually, to people that want to invest in a company. Our average loan officer at Better closes something like about 50 loans a month, if not more. The average industry average loan officer closes something like four loans a month. <laughs> And this is, by the way, this is all public information, right? Like every single closed loan in the U.S., you know, there's an electronic database you can go. And what we've seen actually over the last, you know, two years, right, is that if you look at the industry kind of like, you know, top producing loan officers, you have all the industry people, but then you suddenly start seeing all these 25, 26, 27-year-olds that Better has trained who are suddenly topping these like loan originators charts on the Scotsman's Guide. And I think the key lesson there is, again, it's not that experience doesn't matter, but it is that at least the way our community, our society in general, I think has been constructed is that I think we end up sometimes assigning too much value to it. And I think because of that, it's worth always taking things back to our first principles and asking, what is the real value that's being created by this job? And you know what is the real value that's being generated from this experience? And Is there a better way of doing that? And in in, in our case, we found that actually there is. There really is a better way of doing it. And it generates a lot of value, not just to our employees and, and the loan officers we train, but it generates a lot of value to the customers who end up saving, you know, hundreds if not thousands of dollars from not having to pay these commissions. Those, I think, were a couple of like bigger nuggets that I've taken away from my experience.
0: One misconception that you know people have had is that you know you have to burn relationships and burn your personal life in order to be successful at startups.
2: What do you think about that? From one married man to another. Wow, that's a tough one. I can only speak from my experience at Better and it's hard for me to generalize. But I will say that starting a company is very, very difficult. So before Better, I had all these other community projects that I was working on and I was, you know, playing a lot more squash. I was doing all these, like, hobbies and interests. And then when I started working at Better and increasingly, like, sort of, you know, as I became more and more involved in the company, it really did end up taking up. Frankly, like, you know, there's, like, personal time with my family and my wife. And over time, I think I've tried to find a balance. But the reality is, I think, especially when you're starting up, I think there are diminishing returns to, like, you know, you can't be working 24 seven, right? Like at some point you're gonna burn out and that's not helpful either. But I do think that if you are planning on starting a company, you should probably be prepared to, you know, give your heart and soul and make it like a massive priority for you for a while. It doesn't have to be that way forever. You know, again, most very, very high performing startups are growing at like three to five to eight times a year, right? If you're growing at that pace, I think that it's probably important for you to be not distracted and like really focus on like just doing that thing and then sure you know don't do it forever that, that's why i think a lot of people who are involved in high growth startups right they, they do it for like a, a short concentrated period of time and then at some point hopefully the business kind of like you know reaches a, a certain scale where you know you start bringing in sort of a professional management layer you start kind of being able to delegate take time off blah blah, blah. but particularly in the early stages as much as I would say make sure you have work-life balance. I do think that it is a continual challenge that you will have to negotiate. And I think startup founders will do themselves a great service by not trying to do too many things. Like being like very focused on like you know sure take care of, take care of their personal life. Family always comes first, right? Don't compromise on that. And that, that's my personal belief. Like don't compromise on your relationships. Don't compromise on family. But outside of that, if you want to be the startup founder that's like oh you know I have a startup right and i'm trying to grow it but i'm also trying to do like <laughs> this other community project and i am also have you know what one i'm trying to do some other thing and it's people get themselves into a lot of trouble um doing that
0: yeah i think you speak to a very true reality right which is that the work of the startup is a sp- massive number of sprints right and it's a marathon at the same time and then how do you balance that and it displaces so many things and then you have to really, you know, prioritize uh, the few things that are left. I remember personally that those are startups and my then girlfriend, (laughs) uh, who became my fiance and wife, and that was it, right? And then, like you said, as the company grew and started stabilizing with executive leadership, then I added one more hobby (laughs) to my life, which was doing improv. (laughs) Even then, that was the only hobby I had. It's, you know, so true. How about you? How have you seen that arc for yourself over time? So you said in starting out, you're very focused on the startup, family first. Have you seen things change over that arc?
2: Yeah, I think along the way, you know, as if anything, right? I think you get better at negotiating your own internal trade-offs and your own personal challenges. What I found to be very helpful is try to build routines If exercising is a non negotiable for you, meditating is a non negotiable for you. Make sure that you prioritize those things. Start setting up certain boundaries. I wanted my weekends to be as not distracted as possible. And not that people could have reached me. I always had this, you know, I'm always available. I think at that point, because if I'm managing a massive team, right, like things can always blow up, especially if you are running like the operational teams, you always have to be available. What I tell the teams is if it's urgent on the weekends, call me, right? I'm not going to look at Slack, I'm not going to look at text messages. If it's urgent, call me. And people do. And after a while, I think if you set up those kind of systems to help yourself, tactically, I move all the apps that have notifications. I shut off all notifications on my phone. I move all the apps that are potentially going to be distracting onto the other screen on your iPhone. So it's not the first thing that when you unlock your phone that you see, oh, you know, there's like all these bubbles that, that need your attention. I think if you make a deliberate effort to take control over your time, then it will happen for you. But if you don't and you just allow things to happen to you, then you're always going to feel underwater, right? The other thing I actually found to be quite useful is doing calendar audits every now and then. Even if it's taking like 15 minutes to just look through your calendar for the last like two weeks and go through and say, you know, hey, these things I shouldn't have, right? And actually out of that, one of the things that I learned better was I wanted to connect more with people, And I needed to do that on a more regular basis. In the early days, it was just like, oh, you know, whenever I remember it, then I would remember to do it. But then after a while, it got too much. And I I ended up getting to a point where I had one of my assistants basically help me schedule, like by every week, I would do a skip level with somebody. Every day I would, you know, remember to wish one of our managers, like on their birthday, a happy birthday, right? Like those kind of systems, because there are things that are important to me, things that I want to do, right? But I know that if I don't, programmatize it, automate it, I don't build a routine around it, it's not really going to happen. That was an insight that came up from the calendar audit.
0: No, oh, That's so funny. I similarly switched off notifications for most of my apps, and I love calendar
2: audits. This must be something that's a common thing. Yeah, I, I think it's an occupational hazard for like people who ever came out of consulting background and who have still continued to be on the, <laughs> on the crazy life, I guess I would call it
0: yeah so true you no know, one last question is you know if you go back in time 10 years what advice would you give yourself
2: i think if i went back in time 10 years first i would probably say you know eat all the duck food you want to eat at that point now it really really hurts you when you do that whereas you know when you are 20 and you don't have you have the metabolism of a 20 year old it's very different <laughs> that's one advice that i would give myself but i think one thing that I would probably say that I've learned in my own experience and I actually get as a question a lot from people is people ask me, you know, like, I want to go into startups, right? And how do I pick the right startup? I wish that I had known, like, to some extent, you know, I wish I could say, yes, you know, I picked better in a very, very thoughtful, methodical way. No, better kind of happened to me. Like I was fortunate to be at a time where I really didn't know very much about the startup world. And just kind of fell into it and it kind of did really work out, which is great. But if I had to go back, I think there were two things that I would have thought about very differently. One is, if you're intending to join a startup, what stage of a startup do you want to join? The experience that you get at a Series A startup versus a Series C startup is dramatically different. The way you're compensated at a Series A startup and a Series C startup is also dramatically different. Like people oftentimes think, you know, when they think about, oh, you know, like this company grew like... 20x in three years they don't think that like oh actually you know like the people who were early there actually their investment and their equity grew 20 times so when you actually look at a comp sheet of like any fast-growing company I bet you that like you know when you look at total compensation when you include the value of equity and everything the people who join like even just 18 or 24 months earlier the comp is dramatically different because when the company grows ten times, the value of equity grows ten times. But obviously, not everybody can make that trade off, right? Depending on where you are in life, what your financial obligations are, your cash flow requirements are, you may not be able to make that like equity cash switch. So I think people should really think about that. It was not something that was very intuitive to me. The other thing that I think is important to think about is, and this I think came out particularly of you know like WeWork, and it's to ask like, is the startup really a tech startup? Like people say, you know, why are things called startups? Isn't a tech startup just a new business? I think my answer to that is, yes, a tech startup is a new business. But the reason why we call it a tech startup and not just any other regular new business is because a tech startup is valued very differently. Most businesses, most industries, you're valued at like 2 to 3x revenue multiple. Tech startups are valued at like 8, 10, 15, 20x revenue multiple. And if you want to have those kind of multiples, tech startups fundamentally must have the technology impact the unit economics of the startup. Like, is it changing? What is it changing about the customer acquisition costs? What is the technology changing about the labor costs? What is technology changing about the distribution costs? Like if you use like Amazon, Amazon, at some point, they decided to go from manual labor in their warehouses to an automated warehouse. So their pick and pack went from like maybe 50 items an hour to like 500 items an hour. That has dramatically reduced. It's 10x. They use technology to 10x and 10x lower their labor costs. We've trained and, through the technology, helped our loan officers be 10x more productive. Right, Our loan officers originate 40, 50 loans a month, 10 times that of the industry. That's the power of technology. And it has massive implications for our customer acquisition costs, massive implications for our labor costs. So as people think about joining a new startup, the thing I would sort of pose to them is, how is this startup, this tech startup, right, using their technology to fundamentally change the economics of the transaction and therefore justify the uh, 10, 15, 20x revenue multiple, if they are not able to do that, right? Because WeWork is a good example. The reason people said WeWork is not a tech startup is because when you look and you break down the unit economics, it's not that it's not a good business. It can very well be a good business. It could be another Keller Williams. The problem is that it's not a tech startup because it cannot justify the valuation. It could justify a 3x valuation maybe, but not 8, 10, 15x valuation. So I think those are the two insights that I personally had, you know, in my time at Better. And I think as people think about joining Startup Land, it's things that I wish I had known. And it's things that I hope people would consider as they think about moving into the space. Thank you, Sean. That's an incredible amount of insight, actually. Yeah, glad to. And thanks for having me. This was fun. <laughs> Thank you. Yep. Take care.